Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Sheck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. My guest is Dr. Jonathan Haidt. He is the author of two books. In 2006, he wrote The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth and Ancient Wisdom, and his recent book is The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Jonathan Haidt is a social psychologist and professor of Business Ethics at the NYU Stern School of Business in New York City. He received his Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania in 1992 and did postdoctoral research at the University of Chicago and in India. He spent most of his career at the University of Virginia. His research examines the intuitive foundations of morality and how morality varies across cultures. In 2005, Dr. Haidt began studying how morality varies across ideological groups in the hope of understanding the American culture war. And his book, The Righteous Mind, uh, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, takes on that topic. Welcome, Dr. Haidt. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Your guiding metaphor for how the mind makes decisions is the rider on an elephant. What is the rider and what's the elephant and, and how does that work regarding our moral choices? Uh, well, when we think about anything complicated, we tend to need a metaphor to guide us. And when we think about our minds, um, a common metaphor is to think, uh, well, it's like you know the driver of a car. The mind is the driver and the body is the car, and you tell yourself to go left, and you turn the steering wheel left, and you go left. But life isn't like that. We make New Year's resolutions, we tell ourselves to do things, and then we just don't do them. <clears throat> so when I was puzzling over this, not just professionally, but also in my personal life, in my uh, dating and romantic life, I would uh, know what was best for me and not do it. Uh, I decided, uh, I, I was looking for a metaphor to explain uh, human nature. And, of course, you know, the horse and rider is a good one. A lot of people have said, uh, Freud said, uh, used the metaphor of a horse and rider, um, where the, rider is, the horse is the animal part. But I wanted something that was, where the animal part was much bigger and also much smarter. Elephants are huge, and they're also really smart. So the metaphor is that um, our minds are divided into parts, uh, like a rider on an elephant, where the rider is our conscious reasoning. Uh, it uses words. And the elephant is uh, all the, the nonverbal, often nonconscious, automatic, often emotional processes. And we sort of limp through life. The two of them kind of working together most of the time and working at cross-purposes other times. And this explains uh, why it's so hard to make us do the things we sometimes want to do. And when we make decisions, they really aren't made like we might think they're made by I'm reasoning this out. We're really justifying what we've already decided uh, with our, by our unconscious or our intuition. Well, that's right. So that's especially for, for moral judgments. Uh, there are times when we truly do reason things out. If you want to get to the airport and you're trying to figure out whether you should take a bus or drive or ride a bicycle or whatever, um, <clears throat> You, you, know, you might really weigh up the pros and cons. So we can do that. But for most of our important decisions, there are emotions and social concerns at play. Uh, what will others think of us? Uh, what kinds of uh, inner drives, uh, you know, lust or shame or whatever it is, do I have deep inside? And um, our conscious reasoning is a kind of a thin reed, which is easily pushed around by the conclusion that we want to reach. 
And so we can do that um, in, in all kinds of ways, in academia, in making local choices. We, we are, are, are really, I, I think you use the metaphor of a, of a press secretary or, mm-hmm. or a lawyer uh, kind of justifying what, what we've already decided. Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, <clears throat> there's some really interesting research on, on people with brain damage and on split-brained patients whose brains have been divided in half for medical reasons, showing that the language centers, uh, particularly some little spots in the left hemisphere, they'll just churn out language, even if they've got nothing to go on. They'll just make us speak, kind of like a sportscaster uh, keeping up a constant stream of words, even though he doesn't really have any special insight into what's happening. Uh, and in the same way, uh, so, well, my original research was on moral judgment of situations that are disgusting or disrespectful, uh, but there's no harm done. So, for example, a family, uh, family's dog was killed by a car in front of their house. Uh, they'd heard the dog meat was delicious, so they cut up the dog's body and cooked and ate it for dinner. What do you think about this? Was it okay for them to do this? What I found is that most people instantly say, no, it's not okay. And then I would say, well, okay, well, why not? And they'd say, well, uh, because um, they'll, they'll get sick if they eat dog meat. And then I'd say, well, no, it says here that the meat was cooked. And so as long as it was cooked, would you say it's okay? And nobody says, oh, yeah, sure, then it's okay. Rather, they say, oh, yeah, okay, hmm, well, let me think about this. Let me say, I know it's wrong. Let me try to find a reason. Uh, and so this, these sorts of studies showed me that uh, intuitive judgment comes first very quickly, and then we engage in reasoning afterwards. And it seems as though that our reasoning doesn't always match our intuitive judgment. For example, the reason that uh, we should do things because anything's okay as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. That, that, that doesn't cut it in terms of understanding what our t- intuition is telling us. Well, that's right. So that's why, we ha- that's why morality is so interesting, and that's why we often disagree even with ourselves. Um, for example, during the sexual revolution, um, oh, I saw a documentary on the Weather Underground, uh, a radical left-wing mm-hmm. terrorist group, really, uh, in the United States. And their ideology committed them to a sexual, uh, complete sexual equality and freedom, no marriage, nobody can control anyone else. Um, and some of them went for it, and others sort of had to go along, but they were uncomfortable about it. So sometimes the prevailing culture will push you in a certain direction, and it'll give you access to certain reasons, and it'll deprive you of the ability to explain other things. And I think our modern secular culture has lost the ability to talk about things that are degrading or disgusting. For example, reality TV shows. It's very hard to explain why they should be banned or just why people shouldn't watch them. If they're funny, if they don't hurt anyone, if everybody's uh, a willing participant, what's wrong? And if you're a secular liberal, I think it's very difficult to say what's wrong. But uh, Catholics and, and I think uh, Protest- many Protestants, uh, um, basically this is very uh, accessible religious discourse. Uh, talking about degradation and elevation and how the body is a temple and, and how behavior can be more, more Christ-like or, or more demonic. Um, so you have to look at our inner feelings and you have to look at the external uh, discourse, the words and reasons that we can plausibly give to each other, and sometimes they don't match. If you're just joining us, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck, and my guest is Dr. Jonathan Haidt on the phone with me from New York. Uh, he's the author of The Righteous Mind, why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And your book is uh, divided into uh, three principles of moral psychology. The first one we talked about with the writer and the elephant, that um, intuitions come first and strategic reasoning second. And your second principle 
is that there's more to morality than harm and fairness. And the idea that you can do what you want as long as you don't hurt someone is, as you, as you put it, weird. Uh, the acronym weird being Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Tell us why so many of us are weird and uh, how, your, how your trip to India. Uh, I really uh, sure. was fascinated by that part of your book, how that changed uh, your uh, or modified your thinking. Sure. So um, there have been thousands or millions of societies in history uh, across the ages, across the continents, and they've almost all had a fairly thick morality in which people have to do certain things. For others, they have to play their roles. Men behave one way, women behave another. Um, <clears throat> And then along comes modernity, along comes the Industrial Revolution and democracy and great wealth, and the West begins to change. And it's wonderful in so many ways. People now begin to get rights. You can't make me do anything unless you can show that I'm hurting you or, or you know, breaking some other well-justified law. And what happens is the moral domain begins to contract. People uh, get a lot more personal freedom, which is good in many ways, liberates many people, liberates women, minorities. Um, but we end up in this world which is kind of thin. Uh, some psychologists at the University of British Columbia coined the acronym WEIRD, as you said, Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic, to describe societies such as ours and those of Western Europe, which are really, really unusual in world history. And uh, these weird societies tend to have a very minimal moral domain, which is basically uh, don't hurt anyone, don't cheat anyone. But beyond that, however you want to have sex, whatever you want to eat, uh, what you want to wear, all that should be up to you. The individual is king. And uh, this certainly liberates great creativity. It's great for the free market. We get richer and richer. But at the same time, many people find themselves almost gasping for air or, or saying, is this all there is? Or, or what is the meaning of life? So our modern world is sometimes a little bit too thin. It's as though you've climbed up too high on a mountain and the atmosphere can't quite support life. Uh, and this, again, is where I think uh, religious discourses have, uh, have, uh, have an, uh, an enormous role to play. They're extremely helpful, even for a secular, basically Jewish atheist like me, um, when I read about uh, even evangelical or, or far-right religious uh, communities, um, I used to hate them. I used to be a very doctrinaire liberal in the 1980s and thought that the religious right was neither, as the bumper sticker put it. Um, but after I spent some time in India uh, trying to understand a very traditional religious culture, and people were very nice to me, and I was really open-minded because I, I didn't hate them, I wanted to like them. So once I came to understand uh, what they were up to, and how there was a really beautiful side to a traditional morality as well. When I came back to America in 1993, it was just after three months in India, um, suddenly the religious right didn't look stupid and evil. I, I, it's, it's as though the door opened for the first time, and instead of me just wanting to convict them, you know, having my, my inner lawyer make a case for why they're so bad, I began to say, oh, well, I, I can see why they, they're really upset about disrespectful children in school. And, and and rudeness and runaway rudeness and, and lack of respect for authority. And actually, I can see that there is an advantage to having, uh, having legitimate authorities be respected. So that just really opened my mind. Uh, you know, it's funny how Hinduism, in a sense, opened my mind to Christianity. My guest, Dr. Jonathan Haidt, uh, the author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. You know, 
as I was reading that book, I kept going back to uh, the biblical book of Leviticus and all of the laws. Don't eat, uh, you know, shellfish, uh, sleep with your mother-in-law, and love your neighbor as yourself. And um, modern scholarship, and, and, and I would be part of that, wanted to separate out the, the ethical parts from the kind of the ethnic parts. But those who wrote the biblical books would think that was really a weird thing to do, wouldn't they? Um, because yes. it really is all part of a larger matrix of morality. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, now, I'm no Bible scholar, so I can't really comment on the history, but what I can say as a psychologist is that many, and probably most cultures, uh, try to regulate what you do with your body, how you bathe, what you eat. And modern, um, modern scientists and philosophers tend to dismiss all this stuff. As you said, you want to separate the, eth- the uh, ethical stuff, you know, don't, uh, don't kill, don't lie, don't cheat, from these seemingly arbitrary uh, rules about don't eat pork, don't wear, two different, don't wear uh, clothing woven from two different uh, uh, kinds of thread, um, those sorts of things, they seem so arbitrary. Uh, but my understanding uh, uh, from, from learning a lot about Hinduism, which has very similar kinds of rules, and, and also ancient Judaism, uh, is that they are about fostering self-control, um, keeping yourself away from things that are felt to be degrading or disgusting, because many of the kosher rules are really about disgust. They're not so much about health. They're actually about disgust, about animals that disgust us, those that live in the mud, um, uh, pigs, uh, other animals that have disgusting habits. So it is a total package in which you're trying to rein in your animal desires, um, uh, cultivate self-control and habits that prepare you, prepare your mind uh, to worship God and rise to your higher nature. Uh, that at least is the way I've come to understand the book of Leviticus and, and uh, similarly uh, the laws of Manu in Hinduism. Uh, Islam has many of these prohibitions. They're very common. So what are the other moral intuitions then beyond harm and fairness? So harm and uh, fairness are the two that uh, Western psychologists and philosophers have always talked about. Uh, and nobody doubts that, uh, you know, beating people up or taking their stuff is wrong, and, and you find this all over the world. People have a no- notions of, of private property and rights and, and fairness, things like that. Uh, but what I found from reading a lot of anthropology, uh, I, I did a postdoctoral uh, fellowship with Richard Schwader, an anthropologist at Chicago. Uh, what I found from reading a lot of anthropology with him is that there's some very common moral intuitions. They're not always universal. You don't find them in every single culture, but you find them in most. And so there are ideas about um, group loyalty, ideas about respect for authority, ideas about uh, sanctity and purity, as we were just talking about. Um, and then also there are ideas about uh, liberty, which, which uh, all Americans hold dear. But um, what I began to find is that um, liberals and conservatives build on a lot of these foundations, these moral foundations, quite differently. And uh, the metaphor that, that I use uh, is that the righteous mind is like a tongue with six taste buds on it. Uh, so just as our actual physical tongues have five taste buds, where taste receptors, we have special cells to detect sweet, sour, salt, bitter, and uh, MSG, or umami it's called. Um, and uh, People all over the world have the same taste buds, but they don't all like the same food. There's a lot of cultural learning, uh, but cuisines have to fit with the taste buds. And in the same way, we all have the same moral foundations in our minds, uh, but some cuisines build on some foundations, other cuisines build on others. And we modern, weird Westerners have basically stopped building on group loyalty, respect for authority, and sanctity. We don't really use those very much. And that's part of the reason that um, 
we have uh, many disagreements between traditional societies and us. And what I found uh, is that left and right in this country, uh, the left is, in a sense, weirder than the right. The right uh, social conservatives uh, use all of these six moral foundations. So here in East Tennessee and Southwest Virginia, most people will vote Republican, uh, perhaps as many as four out of five. My friends on the left uh, shake their heads and think that these people who vote Republican are duped by the powers that be to vote against their own economic interests. But you say that the left really needs to understand that there's more to morality than harm and fairness, uh, all these other things that you've talked about, and that we live and move and have our being in uh, uh, other moral intuitions as well as groups. Uh, why, is the left so, why is the left so wrong about this? Um, well, it's, I think it's part of the weirding process. When you, when you stop building on these, uh, uh, these more groupish foundations, loyalty, authority, and sanctity, um, <clears throat> you, you begin to lose sight of them, as, as I, I didn't really understand them until I, until I went to India. And so I think on the left there's this common view that, hey, we're the party that wants to redistribute money to, to, uh, to the poor, so uh, everyone in the bottom half should be voting for us. Uh, but in fact... People's vote, people don't just vote for self-interest. I mean, ec- economic matters do, you know, economic issues and money, they do matter quite a lot in voting, but there's more to it. And my view is that voting is a lot more like religion than it is like shopping. So if you come out and you say, hey, we've got that color television set for 30% less than our competitor, well, you know, people should go to your store because that's a big savings. Um, but voting isn't like that. It's not like, hey, vote for us. We'll give you more Social Security, more unemployment benefits. Well, that might benefit you in the, in the short run, but really people are voting for the kind of world they want to live in, the kind of country they want to live in. And uh, beginning in the 1970s, the 60s and 70s, uh, when the Democrats moved much further left and, and uh, became much more culturally permissive, they began to alienate uh, people with these more conservative moral foundations, people who wanted a thicker, more binding moral order, people who were offended by the ethos of anything goes and the sexual revolution, uh, and who were offended uh, that the government was now using so much force to enforce fairness, but fairness meant racial equality, uh, which, of course, in terms of dismantling the legal discrimination, had to happen, I believe. But once the government got into affirmative action and forced busing, uh, that crossed the line for a lot of people. Those were manifestly unfair uh, and coercive measures. And uh, many, uh, many religious people... Many working-class uh, people fled the Democrats to the Republican Party, what we call the Reagan Democrats. Were they voting against their self-interest, or were they voting for their moral interest? I say the latter. And that's really a part of the big problem, isn't it, is that uh, the left and the right, uh, these, this partisan politics, uh, has us view the other as really not being moral. Um, that's right. When, when we really just don't understand uh, the, the variety of morality. Well, that's right. And that brings us to the third principle of moral psychology, which is that morality binds and blinds. It's really quite miraculous that we're able to get along with each other at all. No other animals can really do this when they're not kin, when they're not family, but we're really good at working together in teams. And we can get our our best cooperation when our teams are bound together, uh, by not by self-interest, but by shared sacredness, by holding ideals in common, by making something sacred and then circling around it and worshiping it. Now, that thing can be God. It can be a football team. It can be an an ancestor. uh, It can be a value. So on the left, people rally around the cause of racial justice and the environment. I think those are worthy causes. Um, But that allows people to band together, put on protests, uh, vote against their self-interest. Often you get rich liberals are voting against their self-interest, one might say. Um, and I think people on the right often sacralize, of course, Jesus, 
often America and the American flag, uh, sometimes the free enterprise system. So if you know what a group holds sacred, you can see them circling around it. And I think they're usually right about some things, but it blinds them to a lot of the nuance. It blinds them uh, to some of the problems with their sacred object, let's say. And uh, the other side often has some wisdom, but we can't see it uh, because we're on our team, they're on theirs, and, and we all cooperate to come up with the reasons why they're so stupid and evil and we're so right and smart. If you're just joining us, this is Religion for Life, and my guest is Dr. Jonathan Haidt. He's a social psychologist and professor of business ethics at the NYU Stern School of Business, ta taught for a long while at the University of Virginia. His new book is called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And one of the chapters in this third section of your book about... Um, about the bound, uh, the boundaries, the groups uh, is the is a section on religion, and you take on the new atheists, uh, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Daniel Dennett. You suggest that they're they're missing the point of religion and just categorizing it in terms of uh, something that is wrong or or supernaturally focused. Uh, you suggest that uh, that religion isn't about believing, and this is something I really agreed with. It's about belonging. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Sure. So. Um, um uh, you know, I'll just lay my cards out on the table and say I'm a, you know, I'm a secular atheist. I have been since a year or two after my bar mitzvah, in the sense that I, I don't believe that there's an actual God, an intelligence that created the world. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and so that's a question that some scientists think they should weigh in on, and Richard Dawkins makes a lot of arguments as to why there's no God. Um, and that's fine. I have no dispute with, with, um, with those arguments. But... The new atheists go well beyond uh, the debate about whether there is a god or whether the world was created by natural causes. That's a perfectly good debate to have. They go beyond that. And they make claims about the nature of religion. They say that religion is not an adaptation. That is, we did not evolve to be religious. They say that religion is, a, is like a virus. It's a set of ideas that someone invented long ago, and, and then the ideas evolved to the extent that they were better at getting into our heads and taking over our thinking and then getting themselves replicated. So uh, Islam and other religions have uh, very strict prohibitions on, tr on treason and ap uh, apostasy, and you know, they'll burn in hell. And these are ideas that, that make, the idea, make the religion replicate well, Dawkins says. Okay, it's a perfectly good hypothesis that uh, uh, religion, we didn't evolve to be religious, that it's a, a virus. And if so, then obviously we should get rid of it, is the implication. That's why he's making all these arguments. And again, that could all be right, but when I look at the evidence about how religion works and what it does to people, um, what I see is that, uh, at least in the United States, the evidence is pretty clear. Religion makes people more charitable, happier, more responsible, more self-controlled, they give more to charity, they volunteer more. So as I see it, the great battle of civilization is, is to combat selfishness. If left to our own devices, we'll just go pursue our own interests. But there are certain things that call us out of our lower, petty, selfish selves. And religion sure fits that bill. Um, so I side with those who argue that we evolved, as part, of, as part of our evolution, we evolved to be religious, because groups that were religious were able to hang together, cooperate, suppress self-interest. They were able to trade uh, among themselves and with other groups. And they were successful. In other words, religion is a part of our history. It's a part of our heritage. Uh, and in the long run, it's been good for us. Uh, now, of course, sometimes it can lead to pathological outcomes, as we see uh, in Afghanistan and in some of the Muslim countries where there'll, there'll be honor killings of girls who are raped and things like that. Um, so I, I don't want to say that religion always makes us good, uh, but I think in a healthy environment such as the United States, uh, it generally does. That, at least, is the evidence 
collected by Robert Putnam and uh, others in a recent book called American Grace. So why is there so much hostility then against religion? Um, and there, and there are we, we might we might argue that uh, in in religion in the United States is 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 kind of taking us into directions that people might not want to go. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I think before what well, what well, we know is that before the 1970s, uh, evangelical Christians and and uh, uh, the, what we now call the religious right. Uh, um, they were not very active in politics. In fact, there was often a wall of separation. They, religious people often didn't want to sully themselves uh, in politics. And um, um, it was in response to the Cultural Revolution and all the change in the 60s that some, uh, some preachers, some pastors, uh, like Jerry Falwell, began to get active uh, in politics and, and thought that Christians should get active in politics. So since the 70s, when the religious right became a very potent force and, and part of the uh, big shift to the, to the Reagan coalition. Now suddenly the, the left was on the defensive, and the left was arguing against these very traditional or even regressive forces, uh, pushing against women's liberation, um, uh, pushing against all kinds of modern changes. So before the 70s, there wasn't really much of a split. The Republicans versus Democrats, it wasn't as the one part, you know, the religious people were in one party. They weren't at all. Um, Democrats were often, were just as religious as Republicans. And civil rights was brought to us uh, by liberals in both parties, especially religious liberals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's really an outgrowth of the 70s. Um, and then uh, throughout the 80s, it, it sort of heats up. And now the, uh, the Republican Party is really uh, sort of doing a mind meld and a political meld with the religious right. And the Democratic Party now is the party of atheists. And now there's a big split. There's a huge difference. I don't know the numbers, but it's a gigantic difference. If you look at uh, people who go to church uh, on a weekly basis or more, they're overwhelmingly Republicans. And if you look at people who never go to church, they're overwhelmingly Democrats. So now, unfortunately, religion is, uh, lines up along the fault lines of the rest of the culture war. My guest, Dr. Jonathan Haidt, author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. I just have a couple of minutes left, but I want to know the takeaway from your book. You wrote this saying that you uh, it's a plea for people to understand each other despite their differences. We're divided over politics and religion in this country. What can we do uh, to disagree constructively? Well, the first thing is to cultivate a bit of moral humility. Uh, and again, uh, for, for Christians, this should be quite easy. They've got, as we were saying, all those uh, cultural reasons and, and dialogue and discourse from, from Jesus um, warning us uh, about our own hypocrisy and about our, our, our misguided righteousness. And uh, what I've learned is that um, because morality binds and blinds, if you're a partisan, if you're on a moral team, um, you can't see what the other side is right about. But, in fact, each side sees different threats, sees different opportunities. And if you let one side run everything, yeah, they'd fix some problems, but they'd break a lot of others or they'd ignore a lot of others. Um, uh, so I think, you, I think of it now as though left and right is like yin and yang. One pushes one way, one pushes another, one pushes up, one pushes down, left, right, whatever it is. Um, and it, we kind of reach a shifting balance point. Um, so, you know, certain things did have to loosen up for... For women in this country, uh, when I listen to older women talk about growing up and trying to uh, uh, work in men's workplaces, it was awful until the 60s. But things have perhaps gone too far, and um, now there's no longer any emphasis on how marriage is a sacred covenant uh, and how 
uh, people should stick together for the kids. That, that doesn't happen so much anymore. So you, you, you need the two sides pushing against each other. And I'm hopeful that if people read my book, um, they'll just be more open. Next time they come across someone uh, who uh, is on the other side or a member of a different religion, different party, um, they'll be more curious rather than angry and recognize that none of us has uh, all the answers and you actually need to talk with those who disagree with you to get the whole picture. There might really be something good in our enemy. Exactly. Dr. Jonathan Haidt, author of The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, my guest today on Religion for Life. Dr. Haidt, thank you for being with me. Oh, my pleasure. It was really enjoyable talking with you. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck, minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. More information about my congregation can be found at fpcelizabethton.org. Information about Religion for Life, including upcoming shows and podcasts, are available at religionforlife.me. Follow Religion for Life on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find Religion for Life on iTunes. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.